great part five of the Moses series. Shall we just dive straight in? Sorry, I've got a little bit of a husky voice this morning, but it's going to add to the drama. Okay. <laughs> I want you to imagine all across Egypt, it was just after sunset and the smell of lamb roasting and herbs drift across the small houses. Families come outside with a bowl of lamb's blood and a branch of hyssop and those blue flowers are covered in blood as they wipe the blood on their, door, on their doorposts. Quick, back inside, close the door, don't open it. As it grows dark, they dress for travel. They eat the lamb, eat it up, eat it all, don't leave any. And they wait, and they wait. They're ready to leave, ready a moment's notice. No time to add the yeast to the dough. They wrap it up for the journey, along with the gold and silver collected from their Egyptian neighbors. This time, they said to each other, Moses said it would work. We have to be ready. Tonight, death would pass over Egypt, killing every firstborn, except those protected by the blood on their doorposts. A low wind began to whistle through the avenues between the houses, and apart from that, just silence, not even the bark of a dog. And as midnight passed, a terrible dark shadow passed slowly over Egypt and the cries began like never before and never since was the grief that night. Tonight was the Passover. Tonight, the great escape. Finally, the slaves would escape Egypt, escape their slavery, the cruelty, the brutality, the beatings, the endless servitude. Here it comes. Here comes the taste of freedom. Now, earlier that day, God had given Moses a message and said, take this message to Pharaoh. Now, previously, let's have a little recap. In case you just joined us this morning, we have a little recap of Moses to date. What happened to bring us to this awful night? So previously on the Moses story, Moses was born into slavery under the Egyptians and yet he was born of the tribe that belonged to the sons of Abraham, the chosen people of God. Pharaoh drowned all the Hebrew baby boys in the Nile, but by faith Moses' parents saw there was something special in him and protected him. He was discovered and found in a basket in the Nile River by the Egyptian princess. He was raised in the palace, ran away as a young man after a fight to the death. He encountered God after 40 years of shepherding in a burning bush call and then sent back to Egypt to rescue his people. And yet attempt after attempt, going back and back to Pharaoh, negotiating after nine plagues across Egypt, you can go, no, you can't, you can go, no, you can't. Pharaoh would still not let his slaves go. And so finally, it brings us to this night where Moses has taken this message to Pharaoh and he stands before him and he brings him this message. This is what the Lord says, he says to Pharaoh. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. Can you see the echoes of the baby boys thrown in the Nile here? From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who's at her handmill. And with all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Can you see the threat in this one? It's not just tragic for families, but it's economic as well. The firstborn in every family across Egypt, including the firstborn of the cattle. This spells like economic disaster upon Egypt. 
There will be loud wailing, Moses says, throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you, and then I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Now, previously in Exodus 11, God had had a private meeting with Moses, and he said to him this. Now, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that, he'll let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. And it occurs to me, these people are all living together. Were they friends before they were slaves? And they're going to give them the silver and gold that they need to build a life once they escape. And so it took place just as God had said, because Pharaoh said no. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people. You and the Israelites, go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. Can you see in the middle of this, it's taken 10 plagues, but Pharaoh finally sees that God is God, the awesome God. And after saying go, he says, and bless me. He realizes God is the Lord and asks for his blessing in the middle of this tragedy. What a turnaround. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. Many other people went up with them. Can you see the other slaves who weren't Israelites took the chance to get out too? Can we come? Can we join in? And they left as well. And also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and for gold and for clothing. And they gave them what they asked for. And so they plundered the Egyptians on that night. The firstborn in every family gone. The firstborn of cattle all gone. The gold, the silver, the clothes. They didn't just leave, but they left with riches, herds, flocks, and terrible damage to the Egyptian population who had enslaved them for all these years. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. So in the dark of the night, they finally make their escape and leave, hearts beating, animals loaded with gold and silver, uncooked dough on their shoulders. They make their way through the night to freedom. 
wow, the great escape is finally here. What an amazing story. Hope you enjoyed that. Dramatic sound effect. Let's look at a few points. I was reading with um, John Maxwell this week. He does leadership training. And he said, when you're speaking, it's good to have a pause. I always forget to have a pause, but a sore throat just helps you have one. So just have a little drink. Okay. A few thoughts on this story. Number one, the rescue. This rescue is called the Passover. And it is the most central story of the Hebrew nation that gets referred back to throughout Scripture. It's the most central thing for them. God's ultimate rescue from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was the night, it's called the Passover because it's the night when death passed over. And it was so important that it was to be celebrated down the generations and it's still celebrated today. In Exodus 13, Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. And this was a night that showed God's power, how they were trapped, they were in servitude under Pharaoh, he wouldn't let them go, he, they, they were the slave masters ruled them, and finally, by his mighty power, God brought them out into freedom. It celebrated all the way down the generations. And it was such an important feast that the Jewish calendar, this became the first month of the Jewish calendar, that the, the year like starts with this event. But it's also a vital picture for us because in picture language, it shows us exactly what Jesus has done for us. And this most special story mirrors Jesus' rescue. So for us, we were all slaves to sin in like our own personal Egypt. Slaves to sin, lost, can't help ourselves, no future, um, no eternity with God. We're over here in Egypt. Then we encounter Jesus and the work of Jesus. And Jesus brings us into freedom that we're now no longer slaves, but sons, part of his inheritance. And this amazing picture, this dramatic story of them being taken from darkness to light is a picture of what has happened to us because of Jesus. And I think we should like take it to heart in a, in a really powerful way. That powerful story mirrors what's happened to us from darkness, from slavery, into freedom, no longer slaves. And Jesus is our Passover lamb. So you know, they had to choose this lamb without fault, without blemish. They had to slaughter the lamb, painted over the doorpost. And that, that blood of the lamb is what protected them. And Jesus is our Passover lamb. Do you remember when John the Baptist, it said the next day he saw Jesus coming and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that Jesus was our sacrificial lamb. When his precious blood was spilt, it brought us a rescue. And this is the central story of our faith, the most central story that Jesus came that we could be free. We no longer have to live in our own personal Egypt over here. 
in darkness, in pain, in anxiety, lost, far from God. But because of the amazing sacrifice of Jesus, our Passover lamb, we enter into a brand new land, our promised land of milk and honey in community with God's help, with the Holy Spirit in us, with our sins forgiven. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God faithful and kind and merciful to us? It's amazing. And Jesus, he, as he was growing up, he would have celebrated the Passover meal every year. He would have been one of those children asking at the table, Daddy, why is this an important feast? And then Joseph, his father, you know, explaining what happened and the amazing story of the rescue. And it ran down through the generations. And for Jesus, his last Passover meal was spent with his disciples. And there with his disciples, as they took and shared the Passover meal together, Jesus knew what was ahead, that he would be that very lamb as he saw it on the table, roasted and skewered. He knew what was coming for him. And after that feast, they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was betrayed and and taken away and tried at night in a false trial and beaten and scourged and ultimately hang on a cross. And there he was crucified for us. And Jesus became our Passover lamb without fault, without blemish. No sin was found in him. Only Jesus could do it. Only Jesus could die for us. And 700 years earlier, Isaiah prophesied that this would happen. He says in Isaiah 53, 7, it's written, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus submitted himself to the cross for us to buy us with a great price. And it kind of makes me think, we live in this rescue. What does a rescued life look like? But let's think a little about our eternal future. The one thing we're all certain of is that we're all going to die. At one point, at some day, we're going to pass from this life to the next. That's cheerful for a Sunday morning, isn't it? But it's one thing we can all be sure of. Death is assured for each of us. And the choice that we make in this life is carried through into the next. So if we choose to live this life without God, then we move into eternity without God. If in this life we choose to accept the sacrifice Jesus made for us, we walk into eternity, into an eternity with God and all his wonderful things for us. So life after death with God, what is that like? Love, happiness, peace, joy, contentment, a new body, peace, rewards, The people in Imagine Heaven recorded meeting, a welcoming committee of other loved ones who love Jesus who've gone before, jobs and tasks and things to do. Sounds amazing. And we know that it's going to be good because we serve a good God and he loves us and we're going to be safe and we're going to live in this just beautiful world of love and safety with one another and with God. It's going to be brilliant. But to die without God, now that is a sober thought. And I've been thinking this week, and I'm sure you have as well, of thinking about that awful situation of the submersible titan, of those five men who got in that little craft, went down into the depths to view the Titanic. What a terrible tragedy. And previous deep sea tourists have come out with their stories of being in that submersible or similar. And they've all talked about how It got colder and colder and dark and the fear and the dread 
and the claustrophobia and feeling death so near. There's one story of people being caught underneath something, they're submersible for hours and feeling cold, dark, alone, their life flashing before their eyes. Thankfully, they made it to the surface and the relief. But it makes me think a little bit, as I've been following and tracking that story this week, what would a life without God be like? To be alone and in the dark and in the cold and lonely and no goodness, all the fear and all the evil of the world. I mean, Tim did that lovely kid spot of how not to be afraid because God is with us. You imagine a future where God is not with you. It is a terrible place to be. And that's why God has offered us this amazing rescue because he doesn't want anyone to die without him. He doesn't want anyone to have that bleak future. But our choices in this life determine where we go afterwards. Now, God loves us so much, he doesn't want us to die without him. So he has provided the rescue. His very own son, Jesus, was the sacrifice. He sacrificed Jesus that we don't have to be alone and in torment, but we can walk through the door of salvation of what Jesus has done and live with him, not only now, but forever as well. In John 3, 16, that famous verse, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Anyone who believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. This gift is for everybody, everybody, not anyone who believes in him, anyone who believes in him will die, will not die, but will have eternal life. So it is our choice to come to Jesus. And I want to encourage you, if you've perhaps been coming along to church, but you go, do you know, I don't have this relationship with Jesus yet. I don't have this personal relationship. If you're a young person who's grown up in church, you think, I don't think I've made that decision for myself. We need to think now about the future where we give our life to Jesus, that we walk with him all through our life and have eternity with him, and that we're not facing a bleak alternative without him. Okay, number two is respect. And this stood out to me when I read the story, that you see that Moses commanded the respect of the officials. Now, this is an astonishing thing. Some of them might have remembered him as a boy growing up in the palace and as a young man. And then we know that he had got into a fight with an Egyptian and killed him and he ran away. But here he is back and he's negotiating with Pharaoh every time, signs and wonders and talking to him. And it's interesting, Exodus 11.3 says this, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people, highly regarded. And he's back and forth to the palace. But what they notice is his grit and his unfailing faith in God and the officials They've got to live and work with Pharaoh every day. They know what he's like. They probably live in fear of Pharaoh, but they see Moses coming back, coming back, coming back. His faith in God giving him courage to come back nine times. He goes back about the plagues, and still Pharaoh doesn't give in. And to Moses, it might have looked like failure. God, I'm going back, I'm going back, and what's happening? But the officials, every time he's there, their esteem goes up and up and up, and they just esteem Moses with this. He was highly regarded in Egypt by the officials and by the people. And I want to encourage us, don't underestimate the impact you have on those around you in your workplace, in your family, in your street, observing your life. Moses might have thought it was a failure till finally they left. But here, every visit, he grew in their regard. 
I remember many years ago, my parents got saved in their 30s. So they became Christians in their 30s. And both their sets of parents, all my grandparents, um, didn't know Jesus and weren't Christians. And some years later, when my grandfather was in his 60s, he was in hospital with terminal cancer. And my dad took him down into the chapel and talked to him and said, Dad, you know, you, you, you're not going to live this out. Um, and, you know, what about your eternal future? And his dad said to him, I have watched you and Jill these last 11 years, and I've watched your faith from afar. At first, I just thought it was one of those fads, but I've watched you live it out. I know it's true, and I know it's real. Will you pray with me? And my dad led him to the Lord there in the hospital. Within a year, he had died, and my dad drove home and led my grandma to the Lord as well. So never underestimate the impact you have faithfully caring and witnessing, but let's hope our friends and relatives don't leave it that late to their deathbed. But I see the respect was a big thing. Okay, number three, the yeast. Now, I noticed reading through this story, it's three chapters long. It just goes on about the yeast all the time. Every other verse, the yeast, don't have the yeast, it didn't have the yeast in it. Everywhere, it, you know, they could just, the writer could put it in. It's just yeast, 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 all the way through. So I started studying, and there isn't really, you know, a lot there in a way. But uh, So what do we know about yeast? What we know is that yeast is very small, but it spreads through all the dough to make it rise. And so you've got your dough. I never made this myself, but, you know, I did tech shan for a little tip. So, you know, you make your dough, and you put the yeast in, and then you leave it alone, and it rises. You knead it again, you leave it alone, and it rises. And this little bit of yeast works its way through the whole batch and turns something small into something bigger and bigger. It's amazing. And yet they were told over and over and over, it's a big deal about the yeast. Don't put yeast in it. And even for the future generations, it was very strict because they're going to do this every year right up to present day. In Exodus 12, it says, it's talking about in the future times, in the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. That is bread without yeast. And verse after verse, it talks about the yeast. Really strong instructions. What's interesting as well... <coughs> Even to this day, when it's the Passover season, everyone has to clear their house from anything of yeast or yeast-like and, you know, blitz the house because it says in the scripture they have to do that. Now, why do you think God put that in? Even not, it's, like, it's not just don't use it, but don't even have it in your house because God knows what we're like. And maybe you'd be tempted to just, this looks a bit flat, this flat bread looks a bit flat. I just, I just... Oh, I just, nobody would know. I just go and get a little bit of yeast. But you can't if it's not in the house, can you? It's like if you're a chocoholic and you decide not to have any chocolate in the house, you can't eat it because it's not even there, is it? But there we are. We all have cars and you can drive some and get some. But why is this such a big deal about the yeast? Well, removing yeast from the house and from the dough became symbolic of sin. Removing the sin from our lives, which really is talking about leaving the old slave life behind. This was the old slave life. They were not to put yeast in the bread, but they were to go into their freedom, carrying that dough on their shoulders with no yeast. It's a picture of leaving sin behind. Sin is associated with Egypt, 
and, and leaven and the yeast. And we leave that behind as a picture language to help them remember we've moved into a new life. And the other thing it's about is about being in a hurry. It was just, there wasn't time to like need it and then just wait. You know, you imagine like Pharaoh finally says yes. And you're like, well, I can't come now because the bread's not ready. No, it's like they had to leave. They had to leave straight away. They had to be dressed, ready to leave. And so not putting the yeast in is also about being ready to go. No time for the yeast to do its work. They had to eat their meal quickly, dressed for travel, ready to leave in case Pharaoh changed his mind. And it makes me think of us. There is a verse in Peter that talks about us having a holy heart, that we've moved away from the Egypt, um, Egypt in our lives. We've moved away. We now walk with a holy heart to the Lord and that we are to be ready to share ourselves. In 1 Peter 3, it says this, your heart should be holy and set apart for the Lord God. Always be ready to tell everyone who asks you why you believe as you do. Be gentle as you speak and show respect. And it reminds me of that readiness. They were ready eating the lamb with the dough on their backs, ready to travel, but they were ready. And let us be ready that when someone says, why do you go to church? Why is your faith important to you? I notice in the office you never swear. I notice that you're kind. I notice that you were generous when you didn't need to be. What's that all about? That we are ready with a gentleness and respect to share, ready to share the meaning of why we follow Jesus like we do. And lastly, number four, obedience. Now, this is what I notice in this story. It's lots of instructions. Now, if it was me, I find I would be having to write them down. Because if somebody, it's like somebody giving you directions. I remember years ago, Chloe's friend, when she's about 11, 13 or so, her friend had a party. And I asked the friend, well, how do I get to this party, and it was a new estate up in, you know, uh, Abbey. Birchgrove. It's when they built all those new estates up in Birchgrove before anything had place names or trees or anything. And she said, well, you go up to the first roundabout and you go left, and then there's a tree. It's the only tree left. Then you go right, and you go down the road, and it wiggles a bit, and you go left, and you go right. And I was like, I'm never going to remember this. And there's a post box, and there's a tree, and it's so vague. But these instructions were very, very specific. They had to remember them. And they were given these instructions. They had to choose a young lamb or a goat. It had to be, um, it, the whole thing had to be eaten. If they couldn't eat it themselves, they had to share with a neighbor. It had to have no blemish. They were to slaughter it at twilight, roast it and eat it. They weren't allowed to boil it. It had to be roasted, the whole thing, intestines as well. No wastage. Let's look a little bit at these instructions. So this is what they were told to do, Exodus 12. Then, so, so God is telling Moses to tell the people this. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames. Now, I can imagine years ago we used to teach young people, and I can imagine having to go over and over where you put the blood here. It's like, oh, it's all over the doorstep. No, you're supposed to put it over the top and the sides. So it's really specific. Here it's saying you put it on the sides and you put it on the top of the door frames of the house when you eat the lamb. That same night, they eat the, eat, eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. This is how you are to eat it. So you've got to eat it in a specific way, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
It says, then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once, select the animals of your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you should go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And then what's the people's response? It says, the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded through Moses and Aaron. Now, these highly specific instructions were designed to keep them safe, that when death passed over, they would be rescued and safe. Stay inside, paint the blood on the top, the sides, have your sandals on. I find it interesting that when the Israelites were given this instruction, their response was to worship. It's like they know who God is. Something terrifying is about to happen. Something only God can do. And it says they bowed down and worshiped and they obeyed. They did everything. Now, it's a very important part of our walk with Jesus, obedience. It's a really important part. And Jesus himself told a story about our lives in Matthew 7, about the wise and the foolish builder. And it's all about hearing Jesus' words and obeying them, that we can live a, a wise life following Jesus, that he is central to our life and we follow him as a true disciple. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And it is a wise man who builds a life that can withstand life storms because it's based on the words of Jesus. So what does a rescued life look like? We're no longer slaves to sin, no longer behaving in the old ways. Now we are free. And so what we do is we put the words of Jesus into practice in our life by the power of the Holy Spirit that we know how to navigate this new life with him. And that's how we do it. In John chapter 8, it records this. Jesus is talking to the Jews who had believed in him. And Jesus said to them, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do we want to be free in this new life of being free? How are we uh, walking that freedom? By holding on to the teaching of Jesus. But they answered him, well, we're all Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we'll be set free? And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. A son belongs to the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see this freedom we have. And, and Jesus is explaining here that when we come to him, when we become a Christian, our slate is wiped clean. All our sins are forgiven. We start a brand new life with him. 
And when we like sin as we go along and we confess our sins to Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us. But there's this process of sanctification that from that time that we enter into relationship with Jesus, we become increasingly more like him. As we put his teaching into practice in our lives, we become increasingly like him. And on the way, he forgives us as we go through our Christian life. And that's how it works. And we're no longer slaves, where we're a slave to sin, tied down, but now we are sons. When it says sons, the reason it doesn't say sons and daughters, it means sons and daughters, but the sons were the ones who inherited. So it means all of us are sons. It's not about gender. We are sons in like a spiritual inheritance sense. So now we're no longer slaves to sin, a slave to doing things wrong. But now we've been forgiven by Jesus. We have a brand new life. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that power, we put into practice Jesus' words throughout our life that we learn from the Bible how to behave in this new land of freedom by the power of the Spirit. And that's what Jesus is explaining here. What an amazing truth. No longer slaves, but sons. I hope that cheers you up on this Sunday morning. When I was reading through this, I was like, Lord, you are amazing. This just gets like better and better and better. We're not just rescued, but we're part of the family. It's not just a rescue and then we're fumbling about not knowing what to do. But it's a rescue and we have your word to guide us. So we are set free by Jesus himself and a new identity as part of the family. Now, in Corinthians, Paul talks to the early church, and he refers to the yeast and the dough, and we're going to have a little look at that to close this last point. <clears throat> so, in Corinthians, in the early church, you remember, there was an explosion of church planting as the disciples were scattered and in the Corinthian church, they were always up to something. And Paul had to write them letters to help them navigate their freedom because there's always something going wrong. And the Christians were trying to figure out their new life with Jesus. And so Paul writes these letters, which we still have in the New Testament. On this occasion, he writes to the Corinthian church because word has filtered back to him that some church members are behaving in sexually immoral ways. And they're boasting about it. And so Paul is like, oh, it's to sit down and write a letter again to sort this out and instruct them. Now that we are free, how do we navigate and live this life with Jesus? He explains, look, that's the old way. And it's not appropriate to our new life. It's not appropriate to a rescued people after the work of Jesus, our Passover lamb. So let's look at the passage a little bit. I warn you now, strong words for Sunday morning. Come on, Paul. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. He says, your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? He's talking about this sin going on in the church. He's saying, don't you realize this sin, you allow that to happen? It's going to spread through the whole dough. Wake up, people. Don't boast about it. Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. He's saying, sort it out. Ask them. They, they got to, you know, repent or go. Then he says this, then you will be like a fresh batch of dough. When you sorted out this sin in your midst, you'll be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. And he goes on to say this, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. 
What I meant is you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. And it's not like an exhaustive list. What he's saying is, you know, in this new land of freedom now, there are certain things that are not appropriate to our new life. They are the old ways of Egypt. They're not the new ways. He says there's no place for gossip or deceit or slander or anger, being greedy or selfish. It is not okay. And isn't it great for us that we, one of our focuses this year is building community. And our unity and our love for one another is very important. And the Bible says don't be a slanderer or a gossip. And there's warnings what to do with a slanderer or a gossip because it's about protection and kindness. It's not okay to be talking about each other in a critical way or gossiping or sowing bad thoughts or bad reputation about people. It's not okay. It's not okay to be angry with one another. It's not okay to just say what you think or to pay people back. It's not okay. It's not okay to be sleeping around or sleeping with my friend or having sex outside marriage. It's not okay. And Paul is explaining this to the Corinthian church. This is a new path now. We're going to love one another and be generous and kind and pure and live out this freedom. Let's not go back to the old way, but be the pure dough with no yeast. And he likens the sin to yeast working through the dough, a little bit like cleaning out the house and not having that little bit of dough in the cupboard because he's saying that little bit of yeast works its way through our whole life. It can work its way through a church. If we don't guard the culture, you know, if we don't guard ourselves from being critical and mean to each other, we will grow a toxic culture because it will go through the whole church. If we don't deal with sexual immorality, that could affect the whole church. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians here, come on, guys, don't tolerate this. If you do it in little ways, it will spread, not just in the fringes, but through your whole life and through the whole church. He talks about the people we hang around with because they are yeast in our lives. And he, when he says don't even eat with them, what he means is, do you know, if we hang out with people who, like he says, claim to be a disciple but are living like this, it starts to rub off on us. The yeast goes through the whole batch, and it's about purity. Now, what I love about this passage, he explains it well and clearly to the Corinthians. It's not ambiguous, but it's clear, and it's helpful for our learning too, because we are disciples too. And so I love the way he talks about that. And so to close with this, I love how he describes our new life. So if we look at this verse on the screen here, this is how he describes it. Then you will be a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. This is our identity. What is our identity? We are no longer a slave. We don't need a slave mentality to live like a slave or live in sin or live like that in darkness or alone. But through the blood of Jesus, we are over here living this life as a brand new batch of dough without yeast. That is who you are. Isn't that brilliant? That is our identity. You know, when we're affected by thoughts or temptation, we say, no, I am this fresh batch. I am a fresh batch of dough without yeast. I am bought with a great price. 
Because then it says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. I've been bought with a price. What an incredible price. What price is higher than the very life of Jesus, our Passover lamb, bought with a price? And then when it says, so let us celebrate the festival, it's not talking about the festival of unleavened bread. It's talking about the festival of our life. Our whole life is a festival with Jesus because we are the new dough bought by a price, living a festival, living a festival of life in freedom. Now, sons, no longer slaves. And sometimes living in that freedom starts with us being able to accept it in our mind, logically being able to work through those steps, letting it explode in our hearts, like those people walking out of Egypt, finally there with the dough on their backs, walking out, a reminder, the unleavened bread, the unleavened dough on their back, carrying it on their shoulders. You and I are walking into a promised land, freed by the blood of Jesus. Our identity is the new dough, living it out with Jesus. I think that's amazing. The new bread of sincerity and truth. How powerful is that? Let's live it together. So to close, Passover. I think about how did Moses feel? What was it like to be Moses? Given this task, thousands of people going to Pharaoh, just a man, just a man walking in obedience, every step trying to follow God's instructions and lead his people, respected by his enemies, waiting for the breakthrough going again and again to Pharaoh and finally, finally on that terrible and powerful and wonderful night, he leads the people out of Egypt and into freedom. Well done, Moses. One day we'll meet him and we can go, hey boy, what was that like? Now he leads them out, but what happens next? Part six, next Sunday, you'll find out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this amazing story and how it's recorded in scripture for us. Thank you for your powerful hand that brought the whole people out of Egypt. And Lord, I thank you that you have rescued us. You have rescued us from sin and death. Thank you for the power of your blood when you overcame death and rose again. We're gonna have a brand new life with you. Help us, Lord, to live it out to live out your words as a true disciple with the power of your Holy Spirit because our identity is the new dough. I thank you for that. And if you've never yet prayed a prayer to ask Jesus into your life, let's pray it together now. You can pray this prayer with me. I thank you, Jesus, that you gave your very self, that you died for me on the cross. I ask that you'll forgive me for my sins, for all the things I've done wrong, I ask that you'll come into my life, that I will be rescued. I ask that by the power of your spirit, you'll help me live to follow you every day. And I choose to follow you now. I give my life to you, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I pray for any person praying that prayer, your blessing of new life will come upon them now to bring them out of death to life, brand new future with you. Ask for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank